Uh, hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Adam. And today we're going to talk about the game we just finished playing, Arcs. But before we do, I have some poll results to discuss. On Twitter this week, I asked the poll if the game's really hyped, lots of attention, strong reviews, shooting up the BGG rankings, does that get you more or less excited about it? The reason I asked this question, I was getting together with a couple guys who were inviting me over to play some games, and I was like, hey, you want me to bring Ark Nova? I didn't think they'd played it yet. And one of the guys says, this is Scott, by the way. I call out to you, Scott. I'm, I'm calling you out here. But he says, man, I don't know. That game just seems so overhyped. I don't think I'm going to like it. And that surprised me. Like, I think in general, I at least want to play games that have a lot of attention that a lot of people are liking. I'm not turned off by them. So I was curious if how the other people felt about that. So uh, how do you answer this, Adam? How do you feel about games that are hyped up? I forget. I, I think I put something like it makes me curious about them. Like, why are they getting so much hype? Is it the designer or is it like some new 4X or is it some new, I, you know, it makes me curious. So why is the hype there? Is the game good? I kind of want to investigate it and either add to the hype or debunk the hype one way or the other or just i don't know or stay neutral about it be like yeah the game was was fine i don't so it it makes me curious what about you tim yeah i said no impact because i think you know even games that are getting a lot of attention if it doesn't seem like my type of game it still doesn't get me i don't think any more excited to play it Um, but i definitely get curious right if a lot of people are raving about a game, I want to give it a shot. It means there might be some kind of special sauce there, some magic. I don't generally believe that games are popular just because people want to talk them up. I think they're popular because a lot of people like them. So, you know, it may or may not be for me, but I think for the most part, you know, I think a, a, a game that a lot of people are excited about has probably at least got something interesting going on. For sure. What did the uh, what did the respondents say here? So we had a whole bunch of answers on here. And if you don't follow us on Twitter, you should at BG underscore hot takes. Uh, every week we ask a poll on here and, you know, lots of people get responses, usually lots of really fun and interesting answers. Maurice Andrews Jr. said, the community will gravitate to what they love. If it's a type of game that I love, I'll be more inclined to fall into the hype. Even if it's not something I love, then the hype will put it on my radar to check out at some point. Yeah, so that's kind of how I fall with it. Um, pretty close. Uh, All games new and old said, as much as I like to think I'm above getting swept up in game hype, I'm absolutely not. It gets me nearly every time. Never Say Die said, using Narc Ova as an example, I was really excited about it as the positive feedback started rolling in, but there was a point where skepticism took hold and my interest turned into rebellion. <laughs> and he's got a gif of uh, of the guy at the end of um, Breakfast Club throwing his fist up in the air. That was a good one, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, and Mr. Rao said... No impact. I'm skeptical of the BGG rankings from the get-go, though. It's a high school popularity contest at the best of times. Games that get lots of hype are probably well-deserving of being in the spotlight, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good game for me. Mr. Rao, we uh, we need to have a conversation about BGG rankings, and uh, and, and I w- I'd love to hear one of your rants about this, because I bet I don't see eye-to-eye with you on it. So that'd be a fun conversation, I think. Anyway, a whole lot of other answers. Here's how people answered the poll, though. 52% said they were more excited about it because of hype. 33% said no impact. 11% said less. And 4% said, I already hate it. Uh, so I wanted to give somebody an answer to like immediately. I'm hearing people excited about it and I, I'm out. Now I have a question for you. When a game gets hyped, it's generally a new game, right? Are there any old games 
that get hyped that you can think of? I think it's usually a new game. I mean, it, it, it sometimes, you know, games get on the radar. Maybe it's because it got delivered off Kickstarter on like a second Kickstarter that everybody's ra- waiting for. Or, you know, occasionally you get games like um, Shut Up and Sit Down is such a huge channel now that if they talk about a game, even if it's like four or five years old, all of a sudden you'll see it jump up on the hotness and you can see all kind of, you know, people will start raving about it. Um, but yeah, I think it's usually new games. Um, and I don't know what it is. It's I think there's like a little bit of a, you know, like people think like, oh, it's a hot new thing. It, it, I mean, it, it you know, it, it can't be good. It's just like, I think they blame it on marketing. Like they're kind of um, feeling like it's just, it's just people are excited about it because reviewers told them to be excited about it. And uh, yeah, I just don't think that actually happens. I think you can have a ton of paid reviewers raving about a game. And if people are playing it, not getting excited about it, not sharing it with their friends, then I, I just don't think it sticks around. I think the games that get really hyped really do, you know, hit with a lot of people. Yeah, the model's kind of weird, right? Especially with the Kickstarters and the paid previewers that hype up everything and get people into it. And it's just, it means nothing. It's so shallow, but the yeah. hype that can be generated is, is crazy. So what, I mean, speaking of models, Stonemeyer games always seem to get super hyped when they announce a release. Why do you think that is? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, partly they probably do do a good job of marketing stuff, but also I think they've just got a lot of loyal fans, you know, like people just love their games. They love the customer service they've gotten from them. I mean, that's what I think has been happening. You know, like you got Jamie Stegmaier has like 20,000 Twitter followers. Like there isn't really a many board game personalities where they've got that many people that are just interested to see what they release next and, and you know, want to hear about it. So it's kind of just like a built-in audience, um, no matter the game. And from my perspective, they still tend to put out pretty fun games, um, you know, with nice productions. And so they're always something I'm in, interested in trying out, whether it's a huge hit for me or not. It seems like a capstone starting to kind of reach that threshold too, for better or for worse, almost anything that they put out that gets... Plenty of buzz and plenty of hype. Yeah. Yeah. And Leader Games, and we're going to be talking about ARCs tonight, but I think Leader Games is another one that right now just has like a huge following, you know, almost, it's almost cult-like, you know, like they're people that just love Root. That's all they want to play. So Leader Games announces another game and it's a huge hit. And I think what, when Root first got announced like three years ago, they put out Vast, which was kind of a mediocre hit that was doing something kind of unique. And, uh, and Root, you know, just took the world by storm, you know, the cute creatures and, you know, the interesting production. And then obviously it hit with a lot of people. So, but since then it's like, you know, leader announces something and you're going to have a lot of people talking about it. Yep. Well, anyway, let's jump into a description of arcs. In arcs, three or four players take the role of regents of a formerly formidable, presently perishing empire that once spanned to the furthest worlds known. A mysterious blight is sweeping across the outermost worlds and players must contend with this in addition to each other to ensure their survival and growth in a hostile universe. After establishing the location of ships, extractors, and factories on the galaxy map, which can be either predetermined or executed draft style, a la something like Risk, players are dealt five or six cards depending on player count. There are four suits of cards, each suit offering two or three types of action, and each of those can be executed between one and four times. For example, the construction card suit gives you access to the build or research actions, and a value one construction card will let you take three actions split between building or researching, while a value three construction card lets you build or research only twice. In a round, the first or lead player plays any card and immediately executes the actions. 
Subsequent players now have restrictions on their choices of cards they can play. They can play the same suit if it's higher than the lead and execute the card normally. They can play any card face down to execute only one action permitted by the suit played by the first player. And finally, they can play a different suit to execute only one action provided from that suit. The player who played the highest value suit of the lead suit becomes the first player the next round. Unless someone has discarded an additional card to seize the initiative and become the first player in the next round. Amazing. Players proceed until no one has any cards left. I didn't mention resource cards. And resource cards can help you build buildings or provide actions before a player begins their turn. For example, a fuel resource allows a player to do a move action at the beginning of their turn. Once players are out of cards or all have passed, the end of round phase begins, where influence auctions are resolved, resulting in production, technological advancement, or immediate bonuses. And finally, end of round scoring occurs. After the fifth round, a final objective is also scored and the player with the most power, aka victory points, is the winner. I didn't mention many things like battle, but we'll cover more of the specifics of the game momentarily. The game is still in development and the version we played was as of May 31st, 2022. Arcs is being designed by Cole Worley, features art by Kyle Farron, is expected to be published in 2023 by Leader Games. We're going to talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of ARCs first. Now, Adam and I have only had one play of this game. We played it on Tabletop Simulator. It is available at Out to Play right now if you want to give it a try while the Kickstarter is live. I think this Kickstarter is going to end about a week after this episode releases. So it may still be there if, if this conversation gets you interested. Um, otherwise, it'll usually do late pledges. And, and Leader Games tends to release things to retail after the Kickstarter anyway. So if you hear this in several months, you can still find an opportunity to look into it. But I was kind of interested in it myself. If you go back and listen to our review of Root, I wasn't a big fan of Root. Um, Adam, you weren't either. Um, but when I heard about this game being kind of a more streamlined system from Cole Worley, you know, I was definitely a little more interested. And it, you know, it, the, the mechanism sounded kind of interesting. They used a tick tr trick-taking uh, mechanism kind of like Brian Baru, which we've talked about before. So had me a little intrigued, but you know, I didn't have high expectations because I, I, you know, I'm not a big root fan. Um, and that's kind of been put out here by the same team. So um, that's where we're coming from, but let's talk a little bit about the uh, mechanism. So what stands out to you? Yeah, I do want to mention too, that this is a, by no means the final version of the game, but I think there's a nice solid core there. So it'll be something similar with some tweaks. I imagine. What stands out to me, I'm going to start with a subtler aspect of the game. It's a part of the trick-taking mechanism, specifically the ability to seize the initiative. In other words, to grab the lead. If you're familiar with trick-taking games, normally the highest card of the suit that's led will take the lead or whoever plays the trump card will take the lead. That means play the first card the next round. Here is just a very subtle, I think amazingly clever mechanism that stands out to me. You can play a card and then you can play a second card from your hand face down in order to ensure that you're gonna have the lead for the next round. So what that does, it can turn your hand of garbage, potential garbage into a pretty good hand at the expense of giving up one turn that series of tricks. 
it's a little complicated. I'm getting into a lot of the verbiage of trick-taking and stuff. But anyway, that, that ability to seize the initiative is what they call it in the rule book. In other words, to ensure that you're going to be leading for the next round of play is just fascinating. I think it's incredibly clever. It stood out to me as being amazing as we were playing the game. Tim, what do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. I, I I think this is a really important option they gave here because, you know, the the action selection you're getting is based on a random hand of cards that you're drawing. Uh, and if we played a three-player game and it was six cards to start. You don't really have any control over that. So in a trick-taking game, if you have a hand of cards, you can just get stuck with a crappy hand. And if you manage to, like, you know, somebody's leading and they're you're not able to take the lead from them and they're just able to kind of run the rest of the thing, that can be really rough. And so that's especially rough here. Now, there's a couple of mechanisms that this game does to help mitigate that to some extent, but this initiative steal is is one of those things. And it's a very tough choice, but I definitely used it. I saw you use it, I think, in the second turn of the game. And I was like, oh, and I'm throw away an action for that. I'm never going to do that. That's a waste of a, a turn. But a couple rounds later, here I was with a just a, a, an action that would have given me three really, a card that would have given me three powerful actions. It would have really impacted the objectives for that turn and um, really important for me. So I gave up that one extra action and it really helped. I managed to take both the, the objectives that were available in that round um, because I was able to do that. So it gives you a really good option to steal that, that lead if you really need to. But since we're talking about the trick taking, you know, there's a couple other things that happen here that are kind of interesting, right? So the first player, just to get into the details here a little bit, the first player is going to play the lead card. And there's, uh, what is it, four different suits? I think it's four different suits. Yep. And each of the suits basically give a player one of two or sometimes three different actions they can choose from. So for example, there's the action, the one that uh, lets you do an attack. The attack action lets you either do moves or attacks. And so the lower number card you play, the more actions of that type you're going to be able to get. So if somebody leads, for example, with the one of this card, they're going to get three actions from it. And then the people that follow, and this is where the decisions get interesting, the people that follow have a couple different choices, right? They can follow with the same suit of a higher number. And if they do that, then they, they get those actions and they'll get the number of actions that are listed on their card. The problem is that the higher number cards tend to give you less actions. So if you can go one higher, sometimes you can still get a couple of good actions out of it. Otherwise, you can pivot so you can play a card of any other suit of any number and you can get one of the actions from that. And that at least gives you some flexibility, right? You're not stuck following the suit. And if you don't want to do an attack and you want to do a, a you know a build or something like that, uh, research, you can still do that, but you're only going to get one of the options. So you're kind of maybe giving up some, some benefits. And lastly, if you just really want to do what the leader did, but you don't have those cards, you can just flip a card over and copy what they're doing and you still get one of the actions. You have a lot of flexibility here, but you're always trying to optimize on how can I take advantage of getting multiple actions in that turn. And that's where the fun puzzle is in this trick taking. But I never felt too hemmed in on it. I would get a hand every time and kind of be like, well, here's a bunch of fun stuff to do. Let's see what Steve leads with, and then I'll see what I can do to follow it. And I think I could probably optimize that a little bit better. Just like I tend to do with, with trick-taking, I never I never really think of how to take advantage of it until I'm several hands in and it's really starting to get into the flow of the thing. And I think I probably didn't optimize you know, the first few rounds here. But the more you play this, I think you'd start to find that the patterns of like, oh, and I've got the three, four, five in my hand. So I know that if I play the three here, no one can follow me and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead the next two tricks. And so there's a lot of fun choices to make there. It's going to seem like we're talking a lot about the trick-taking aspect of the game, but I think it's so clever and so unique. I think it's worth it. 
So I'm also going to talk about it more too because I want to talk about the resolution order. So in lots of games, Brian Baru, for instance, everybody plays their card and then the actions resolve at the end of the round. And Brian Baru, I think it goes highest to lowest or lowest to highest. I forget which way that, you know the cards are numbered 1 to 25. So a lot of times, yeah, the, the actions that coincide with the cards played will resolve. So here, you play your card and you do the actions right away. You don't even wait for the other people to play their cards that round. So there's another difference in this what's being called trick-taking here. So I thought that was just a neat aspect too. So again, if you're the first player in the round, you get to play a card and no matter what, you get to do all the actions on that card. You don't have to wait. You don't have to see if someone's going to beat you with a higher card. No, you just get to do it. That's why it's so important to be going first in the round. So just to back that up a little bit, I'm really enjoying all these variations on trick taking. You got shamans, which is kind of a free for all, do whatever you want. You've got Brian Baru, which is a little interesting too, not traditional trick taking like spades, for instance. And then what's the other one? Ghosts of Christmas. I recently played. That's another kind of variation. And then here it's just, it really blurs the line between hand management and trick taking. I think it has a trick taking elements, but it's really also working with those five or six cards in your hand you really have to do but anyway i'm i'm going on a ramble here but a little bit but what do you think of that ability to resolve your card right away and not have to wait for to see who's gonna trump you or play a higher card yeah that's the key here right it, it never felt like too like i said i always felt like i had some decent flexibility so if you're playing first just do your thing and take advantage of it as much of course if you play a lower number and get the most benefits you have the risk of losing initiative for the next turn and so it's still an interesting choice to make it didn't really feel like i was being hampered by my opponents there was definitely interaction i had to watch what you guys might play I had to think about what cards you might have in your hand but it was nice that hey i'm gonna just take my action and do it and you, f you figure out what you're gonna do after me um, and then it's important to see how that resolves and who ends up with the initiative for the next turn uh, yeah, that was great. Um, and I think, of course, we have to compare this to Brian Brew because, you know, it's another, you know, kind of weighty board game that uses trick taking for the action selection. And I have to say, I think it hit even more here. Like, I like Brian Brew, um, but I thought that it it just was it was fun, man. It was every every time I never felt too bad about what I had to do. There was one more choice I want to talk about there, and that is that, like, if I had the lead but I had a card in my hand that didn't really give me an action I wanted. You can just pass, and then the next person next to you, maybe they lead with something you want so you can copy them. And I took advantage of that several times, and it was always interesting. And half the time, one of you guys would play exactly the card I had in my hand, and I was like, oh, man, I didn't get the benefit from it anyway. But sometimes I did. Sometimes you guys would play exactly what I wanted, and I get to do that extra action I wanted. So tons of cool choices here. Yeah, again, just the, the variations and the way it's done are just fantastic here for the trick-taking card play aspect of the game. I feel like you still have enough agency in what you want to do. And Brian Baru, I feel like that gets lost a little bit to go back and compare it to Brian Baru. Yeah. Like you're not always able to do what you want to do necessarily. But here, it it really felt like the order in which you played cards, if you want to seize that initiative, if you want to pass the initiative, it all adds up to this game that lets you feel clever lets you feel like you are able to you know make some moves that are going to help you out and give you more agency despite the hand that you're dealt which is just 
it's cool and it's just such a smart way to do it. I really loved it. Yeah, now let me talk about the my favorite part about the game and that is the objective cards. And basically the way you're gonna get almost all your points in this game is that there's always two active objective cards and you can always see what the next one that's gonna come over is. So, um, you know, in the starting round, you have two objective cards available. At the start of the next round, one of them falls off and then the next one that you already knew about is gonna come on. So for most of the game, you're gonna to get to activate any one objective card at least twice over two different rounds. I always love these kinds of little like, okay, here's my goal for this round, let me hone in on it. And I was comparing this to Gaia Project a little bit, which has those round you know, scoring goals, but these felt more dynamic and really drove the gameplay in a more interesting way. Like just to give you an example, I'm looking at the rule book right here, and one of them they have listed as Tycoon, have the most cards in your hand. Um, and so, this is, that's an interesting one because that means that you're basically passing at the end of the round and holding onto a card in order to get some extra points. Yeah. Or the pragmatist, pivot the most times whenever you pivot, place influence here. Pivot meaning that you're switching to a different card. So on this round, you're kind of motivated to not follow the leader and instead pivot, you might get some extra points for it. But they're not huge point swings. There was one that's have the most ships on the board at the end of the round. There was one that's yeah. occupy the most territories without any other enemies in them. They're just varying, subtle, you know, just gives you a goal to go for. They're really neat. Aside from those uh, round objectives, which were the most fun part for me, but you also, everybody had a private objective, which seemed pretty vastly different, maybe kind of a slightly hard to achieve goal. What I noticed in our game is that I had a goal that would give me five points, which is a pretty significant amount of points at the end of the game, but it's pretty tough to hit. But you guys both had goals that were flexible. Like if you did one to five things, you get one to five points. So when you chose to turn it in, you could just try to do it in an optimal time and get a few points for it. So interesting variety of stuff there. And then there is also a final objective. This is something that's visible at the start of the game that is worth a decent amount of points, eight points if you do the best at it and three points if you're second. And this is a, a kind of a weird, like in our game, it was kind of a thing where if you could collect three resources and then take an influence action, you could dump one of those resources and put an influence on this thing. And whoever had the most influence at the end of the game would get points. So it kind of draw, drove people to drive a little bit of an economy in one type of resource and then use some of those influence actions. I don't know, something about the objective scoring of this was really fun to me. This was not just a point salad. You're really driven at certain times to, do I want to focus on this objective this term or is Adam clearly going to get it? So I'll ignore it and set, my, set myself up for maybe next round's objective or try to work towards the final objective a little bit. And I found it just, I just found it so fun. It was like every round I was just looking for new things to try and stretch, you know, spread out. The one other place you can get points here is by attacking Blight on the board or by attacking one of your opponent's buildings as well. And, and so that was kind of cool as well, because it kind of motivated you to stretch out, uh, go into areas that had other buildings, and of course, go into your opponent's areas, which is part, part of what you want to do in a 4X game. Yeah, so you're bringing up a lot of these things, and a lot of them are, I think, compared directly. They're, they're like pieces from Root, and some of these are pieces kind of from PAX Premier 2nd Edition, which I'm very familiar with. Those are both Cole-worthy designs, too. So... Talking about those objectives has a little bit of the feel of like a market road, kind of this river that marches down, the ability to plan ahead and anticipate what's going to happen and try to structure what you're going to do this round to roll that into the next round and maybe kind of double up, you know, build ships while you're going to these unoccupied territories. So you're hitting two, three of these goals in order. It gives a nice flow of the game and things that go for it and it lets you see what your opponents are doing too and try to counter that so 
I think that's just fascinating, Tim. Those objectives flowing down the little end around scoring objectives were great. On the other side of the board, you have this area where you're placing influence resources out there, which is also just fantastic. This is kind of like an auction thing. This compares again with Brian Baru, I think, and some of the four secondary objectives in Brian Baru that you're going for around the board. So you're building these influence. If you have the most influence in the region, you get to do that action or take that card and then you clear your influence out. Everybody else's influence stays in that section for the next round. And then you do it all again. It's it's just fantastic. And the way it resolves top to bottom might have an effect on the cards later in that round that are that are snatched up. Very cool system there. What do you think of that? Uh, the influence side of the board. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, really streamlined. I mean, basically just I'm going to put influence out there. But it was so interactive. Like you guys were constantly... I felt like I'd be like, okay, I want this one card, so I'm going to put two influence on there. And inevitably, before the end of the round, someone else has moved two influence there just to block me from getting it. But it was kind of cool, too. Like, first of all, there's always three cards in those influence areas, and so those are going to change every round as far as what cards are available. And these can be upgrades to your current technologies. They can be new technologies. They can be one-time effects. I had one that was an endgame scoring condition. And they were all interesting to see what came up every round, and there's a lot of variety in it. But then you had the couple of spaces, one that just let you activate all your factories, and one that let you activate all your uh, extractions, which are you know kind of your production cities. And those were really valuable too, because like if you've got a few production plants out there and you can activate all of them, that's as good as playing a three-point production card, which was not easy to do and not easy to pull off. A lot of fun interactions that are always fighting for, I'm always watching for what you guys are going for and thinking about what I could what I could pull out there. Really liked it. One thing we haven't talked about yet is the the map itself, the board, outer space, with the the planets and the hexes and the void. The different parts of the map are cool too. So when you're talking about this production, one of the areas out there were these two blue sections where if you had control of those, you get to produce a resource as well. So that was part of that end of round resolution too. So you have all that area you had. There's a couple areas where there's no fighting allowed and we did just play the one game not the campaign which is coming and i think that's the only version that's available for the common folk right now so the map itself i thought was cool and looking at the campaign one there's going to be abilities to have a more dynamic map where stuff's going to be changing from game to game to game so the map itself i thought was fantastic easy to get around you have these black holes it's not a huge overwhelming map but it's more interesting I don't know. It's just an interesting map. A lot going on there in a easy to parse uh, situation. Yeah, I agreed. I'm glad you called out the map because I also wanted to talk about it. Um, I like that there was a variety of spaces that did some different things there. As you mentioned, there's one ion storm space you could move through with a little bit of risk, but potentially some reward for it. There are these wormholes around, so you're never too far disconnected from other parts of the map. You can kind of teleport over to another part of the map. And then just the planets themselves, the makeup of them were kind of unique because each of the planets has different production types that you can create. They have different spaces on them, so one planet will only have one circle and one square, which means you can only build one square type of building and one circle type of building, but that means only one blight's going to show up there when you move into that sector. And then there's other ones that have like two two squares, so they're a little riskier, but then have more opportunities to produce on them. So a lot of fun there in this board. Now, I, I do suspect that it would probably start to feel a little tired if you played this game over and over again. Like, okay, you know, it's, this is always the best spot to, t- to start in. So we're going to auction off the, you know, the, the starting turn and everyone's going to start here. 
Um, I don't know, but I, I think the game's ripe for outside of the campaign mode, which I'm very interested to explore. Um, I think the game is ripe for simple expansions of additional maps. Uh, it would have been kind of cool, and maybe they'll then do this before the end of the campaign if they at least did like a double-sided map with at least a couple different maps in there. That would give a little bit of nice variety in there. I'm not sure it needs it, but I think that would be, I think it'd be fun. We play the quick start version. There's also the version you were alluding to, Tim, where players take turns putting their pieces out there and, like you said, draft their starting positions rather than just have the standardized starting positions. Yeah, and I suspect that that's partly why it felt like it could get repetitive if we played this, the kind of the the intro version every time where your three shit, you know, your th- all of your ships are all in three segments right next to each other and you're kind of separated in different types of the, the board. I could imagine in a game after you get to know this a little bit where, okay, Steve just put, you know, his first, he, he claimed this first planet. So Adam's going to take the one right behind him to block him off from the wormhole mm-hmm. over there. And then Tim's going to go all the way to the other side of the map to make sure that he's far away from everybody. And then the next person's going to place their next planet and it's going to be like, okay, well, I got to get right next to Tim there. So a little more dynamic, probably a little bit less secure, right? Because, you know, we all started kind of grouped, all of our ships grouped in one area. So it was not very safe to go in and attack somebody, at least at the beginning of the game. And I bet if you were more spread out, in that type of game, you end up with more quicker interaction in the combats. So you talked about the attack there. Let's talk about that in route. That was one of yours and I's, uh, yours and eyes, yours and mine. <laughs> Least favorite things was just this: roll these couple of dice and then knock some guys off the board, and then the attack's done. So freaking boring. Here you have a system that's super streamlined and super easy to understand the way as the way it is right now. You grab a few dice of the colors that you want. You get to decide. The defender doesn't even roll dice. How awesome is that? Because by nature of the dice themselves, the attacker rolls them. The attacker can take hits on himself from rolling. So it's super streamlined and incredible. It's just one roll, but it doesn't feel awful. It feels, it feels pretty good. Yeah, I was I was really surprised by this because when I read about the dice system here, I was like, ah, that kind of reminds me of Root, where the attacker rolls the two dice, you know? But it doesn't feel like Root at all, and it was always an exciting roll, and you had these choices, like, hey, I've got got four ships attacking, so do I want to take the four strongest dice but they're also the riskiest dice to me mm-hmm. or do i want to take the four safe dice but i might not even get a hit in if i if i just need one hit i might not even get it or i can take the dice that let me steal stuff from my opponent which obviously is strong but they have a lot of risk as well and so it was always fun to kind of think like oh, i got this many dice this is how many hits i absolutely have to get to make this a successful attack so how do i want to compose this to give you know put the least risk in myself always fun and interesting too like the symbols on it are really simple, right? You've either got a solid A, which means you just did a hit, or you've got a, a an A outline, which is like a half a hit. So you have to have two of those in order to get a hit. So it was even fun to see like, oh, I just rolled two half A's, you know? Yep. And then the D is a damage to yourself. And then there's like the little gem, which lets you steal. So super clear iconography and just a fun blast is like roll that handful of dice and see what came out of it. I was I was shocked by how much I enjoyed this little battle system. It was so fun, and you're not going to have any kind of eclipse situations where it's roll, 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 roll. People are sitting around waiting for stuff to happen. It's just, hmm, kind of decide what what dice you want to take for this battle, and then you just one roll, and you're done. And I do love the, you know, it's kind of like the rift cannon from Eclipse, for instance, where you can do damage mm-hmm. to yourself for that higher risk, potentially more attack die. That's so fun to me. I love that that mechanic yeah. there. Now, there's, there's really probably just one more mechanism that we haven't really spoken about, and that is, um, you know, you have a player mat, and you've got a couple types of units you can build to start with. You can build ships, 
And then you can build factories and excavator, which are the starting buildings you have. When you acquire cards through influence, you can either acquire upgrades to those components or you can acquire some other types of buildings. The one thing that I was a little surprised by, I like that there's some variety there, but it didn't seem like we really utilized those buildings or other units that we collected very well. So I don't know how valuable those are. Again, it might come out into play more when you're less grouped together. You know, if our, if our units were spread out more, having that stronghold would probably be a much bigger deal. Having those reinforced extractors might be a bigger deal. So I definitely am excited to play this again with a little bit more of a varied setup and see if those come into play a little bit more. But it was always fun to see them. You know, the one last thing I, I wanted to mention that I really didn't think I was going to like, and I, when I read the rule book, I was like, this is a really strange decision. Why'd they do this? And that's the hold. Um, so you basically, everything you do in this in this game is cards. If you collect a card before you research it, like a, a new upgraded technology, you have to put it in your hold. But also there are five types of resources you can get from extractors and other things, and those have to go in your hold. And you can never have more than six cards. And I was like, why would they make the resources cards? That's a cheap decision. But ultimately, it actually ended up being really fun. Like the more stuff you collected that you didn't research and build, you were taking up spaces in your hold. And so you were a little, you know, like more restricted for what you could build. Um, it, it created some interesting decisions and some, you know, challenges like, well, I, I guess I have to dump something. I got to dump this thing that I spent three turns researching earlier because I really need these resources for the objective this turn. It, it put an extra restriction on the game that I thought was pretty interesting. What do you think of the, you know, the resources and how they were all managed? Yeah, so you mentioned that they're cards, and that does seem weird, right? When was the last time you played a game where the resources were cards? That was that was different. So you have those going back and forth and shuffling those around, but it makes sense now. Everything's a standard size. You don't have to worry about like little chunky nuggets of this rolling around anywhere. I liked that hold system. I like that you have to carry unresearched technology in the hold and that makes it susceptible to getting stolen by other players. Same with all the resources. Same with, uh, you know, save this for the end of the game and then play the end of the game and get three points. Like right. that could get stolen too, right? And right. So that's pretty neat that stuff like that can get nabbed by an opponent. I thought that was really, really neat. Let's talk about the theme and production on this game. Now, Adam, I have to ask, because when we reviewed Root, you said that you hated, you were just done with Kyle Ferrand's artwork, with his cutesy theming. Here we are again with a Leader Games production, Kyle Ferrand's. What did you think this time? Well, the oranges and blues are still there in Kyle Ferrand's artwork, but they're super toned down and they're mixed in with some some darker colors, some blacks and some whites and some everything looks a little bit rougher and grittier and it's not so cheery cheery and in your face. And I absolutely love the artwork here. Everything has tons of character. I think that the artwork is only going to get better. That's kind of the MO for Oath, for instance, in Root, for instance, you go back and look at some of those early versions on TTS. And it just got better and better and more developed as they got closer and closer to the release date. So here already the art's fantastic. I think it's already going to get better. My main complaints with like Root and Fort was just these blaring oranges and blues and bright colors. And at first they're nice to look at, but after a while it just, it got to me. It was a little overstimulating. But here the art just hits for me. It's Kyle Farron's style done in a way that I just absolutely loved. What do you think of the art here, Tim? 
Yeah, I, I really like the look and style of this game. And as you mentioned, this may not be a finished production. Maybe it will even be improved further. But I love his little sci-fi art here. All the little aliens in the in this art is great. Um, you know, the ships look cool. Like, just the planets on the board all look really cool. So I really liked it. Otherwise, though, the production is very root-like, right? You have a few wooden components. The ships are uh, unique shapes. They look like cool, big uh, battleships. And then you've got these little agent meeples that have a unique shape to them. So those are nice enough. They're fine. They're, you know, they're, they're uh, uniquely shaped wooden components. But one thing that I think maybe is just a carryover of my feelings from Root is that I never liked the, like, kind of the building components that were used in Root, which are either the circle tiles or the square tiles. And they did the exact same thing here. And that was a, that was a shame to me. I mean, it just, it feels very dry and, and it kind of takes away what otherwise I really liked with the theme. So if you were interested in back in this game, would you spend the extra 50 bucks to get the miniatures, the plastic damaging to the planet miniatures? Mm -hmm. They're going to give that extra depth and dimension to the buildings, square or circular. What, what are you going to do with the miniatures here? I have to admit that I, I probably would say no normally. And I, I may still, if I make the decision to back in, I'll talk about that in my final thoughts, I may still not do that because I think the wooden from the meeples, right, the, the, the components, like the wooden components, I think are fine here. Um, but I do, those plastic miniatures that are based on Kyle Ferrin's artwork are adorable. They look really cool because they kind of give you that abstract kind of cartoony feel of his of his artwork in a very detailed plastic miniature. So... They look really rad, so I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of having a hard make, you know, like it's it's a hard choice. Now I gotta say, since you're talking about the price to upgrade those components, this feels like a high price to me for the components that are in the box here. Again, they may not be done with the production. There may be more things released over this uh, campaign, or they, you know, may may have to put more in it. But this is a, you know, it's a pile of cards and a handful of wooden components and some some cardboard sheds. Just explain it. There's the three levels of the game. There's the the base game, the one we played last night. It's just a single play, smaller map, play it, get it done, in and out in, I don't know, 90 minutes, two hours, something like that. Then there's also the campaign mode and expansion stuff. That's at the $100 level. And back me up on that lowest tier level. I'm not sure. Six, 60 bucks for the lowest tier level. And it's saying that's an $85 MSRP though. So right, then the next one up is 100 bucks and that gives you the expansion and campaign stuff. And the next one up is 150 and that gives you 80 something miniatures with this little pre-wash that highlights the, the features of the miniature. Yeah, and I did not see that they were ink washed, so that definitely adds a little bit of cost there for them. I also didn't realize that it looked, so if it's 84 minis, then they must be including um, I assume that the cubes are going to be replaced with some kind of little plastic components as well. Yeah, good question. Base game, you know, $60 for what's in this box. Like, let's take a look at Root. And this feels like a very comparable box of components to me. And that is, I think, I think a $40 game. Like, that's basically what you can pick Root up retail. And I don't know if that's the MSRP, but I feel like that's about where it falls. And so this being an $85 MSRP for a similar, you know, component set which is not particularly extravagant in any way. It's a very typical Euro. It feels high to me. Now, that being said, like manufacturing costs are up right now. Shipping costs are up right now. So I think it's possible we're going to be seeing games across the board raising their prices a little bit. And based on the number of pledges that this campaign has gotten, it hasn't turned too many people off. 
But I have to say, it made me pause a little bit more. If this was a $50 game versus a $85 game, um, you know, that would make a difference, I think, in how much I feel like I can pledge it when I don't know how much it's going to get played if I bring it into my house. Puts a little more risk um, on it for me. So felt a little felt a little overpriced, but again, maybe that's the direction things are going. I'm going to get nitpicky here and say, how come the wood pieces aren't screen printed we got that in root, and we—I yeah. think we got that in root, and we got that in oath for sure. Oath, oath was a little yeah. more. I mean, I think the oath was like ninety bucks for all of that stuff that they threw in there, with all the Kickstarter, maybe more than that, with a little Kickstarter booklets and uh, the fancy components and metal coins and this and that. Don't trust me. Go verify that if you're listening out there. Yeah, you're right, Tim. It does seem like a little bit high of a price for what you're getting. And who knows, maybe there's more development on the way. Maybe they will end up screen printing these guys. But for me, the gameplay was cool enough that right now I have it backed at that $100 level. I might change that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I don't have anything else to say on the theme in production there. So let's jump into our our final thoughts since you're talking about backing it. And, um, you know, the question is, would you request to play it again? Well, obviously you've chosen to back it at this point. So it sounds like that's a yes for you. So give me your final thoughts on it. Yeah. So I've been kind of saying positive things all night about it. It's, I was a little turned off after oath and the complexities there and some of the vocabulary and there's rule books. Corley's a smart guy. He loves to, to flash the words around and develop his own kind of language and lexicon for each game that he develops he does that a little bit here but not to the point of being a turnoff it's very streamlined game i think the trick taking alone and the card play dynamics are just fantastic enough and unique enough and clever enough to make me one of that alone and then you add on this sort of streamlined 4x play the interactivity that i love in board games and it doesn't seem overly harsh. You know what you're getting into. Maybe it's harsh. I bet there's some scenarios where someone's going to get slaughtered. And there are cases in the rulebook for player elimination. You get to come back next round and put some guys out there and start back up. You're not out of the game. So, yeah, I had a great time playing this game. Things started to click by the third or fourth out of five rounds. And we we're moving right along. We had this game flow in Tim. It's the kind of game that I love. I got a lot of Pax Premier feelings from this. I got a lot, a, a couple of Root feelings from this, which I'm not a big Root fan, but the potential for this game and the system, I think, are huge. And I want to have this in my collection. What are you thinking here, Tim? Yeah, I will definitely request to play this game again. I was, I was shockingly impressed with how much fun I had playing it. I really, you know, again, read the rule book, have some experience with leaders, other uh, games, you know, uh, Root as well as Fort are a couple examples. And I, you know, I wanted to try it. I was interested in it, obviously, but I really didn't expect it to blow me away. Um, I didn't think it would like take the spot of something like Eclipse, which is a game that we love as a 4X game that's pretty streamlined and, you know, straightforward. And believe it or not, I think this is my favorite 4X game that I've played. Um, I think the way that the simplicity of the action selection happens along with the objectives, the, the shifting objectives that are happening that kind of just drive you instead of just saying, hey, go for points or the objective of every game is to like take over, you know, buildings and try to build up an economy. It's like what you're doing every game is going to be dictated by the points that are out there available. And I just had a blast pursuing that system. I had a blast with the variety of cards that came up. And I think there's a lot of variety here, even in the 
you know, kind of the single game mode that we didn't get to, right? Like there's lots of cards available. This campaign comes with a little extra stuff expansion. I don't know if that's going to be available in retail, but it, it's part of the campaign right now. So, you know, that's going to have even more variety to it. I really, really love this game. So I, I can't wait to play it. Now, am I going to back it? I'm very tempted, very, very tempted because, you know, not only is, um, is it a game that I really had a great time playing? I think it's streamlined enough that if you have three, and it's, it only plays three to four players, which is interesting. So I can't even make the, the argument to say like, hey, you know, even if nobody's around to play it with me, I'll just play it solo. I think if you have three or four players here, the teach is pretty straightforward. The first time we were playing through it, I have to say that there were some rules that are kind of weird in here. So it is not the most streamlined game. Like the, the, the basics of the system are pretty straightforward. But there's still, we did a lot of rule book checking on our first play. Uh, again, you know, this is still being developed a bit. So they may streamline the rule book a little bit. Maybe some of that stuff will be cleaned up. But just for some examples, like the trick-taking piece of it, where if you, if you lead with a suit and then somebody follows with a suit of a higher number, they get all the benefits on it. But if they follow the same suit with a lower number, they only get one benefit on it. So, you know, just a whole lot of things that were just like little things that are going to come up occasionally. And you had to go and double check the rule book on um, the way that, you know, ships were produced had to be on a factory and you can only do one per factory versus other buildings. You just had to pay the resources for them, even though it's the same action. So, so you know, it's just kind of some of that weird quirky stuff that led to us spending more time on a first play than I would have liked. But that said, like Adam said, you know, by the end of the game, we were kind of running right through it and we had kind of internalized all these rules and it was not a big deal. So I think now that I've played it, I think I could sit down and teach this to somebody in like 10 minutes, maybe max, and we'd be away and playing it and having a really fun, epic experience in this. I think it would be a two hour game once you get to playing it. So I'm really tempted to pick it up. Um, it is such a, just a cool package with Kyle Fern's artwork, the sci-fi artwork, the, the box cover looks rad. I think I just might back it before it ends. Haven't a hundred percent decided. And frankly, Adam, I think if I do back it, I'll probably back it at the $150 level. It's a hard choice and totally unnecessary, but I really think that those miniatures are really unique. They don't feel extravagant. They don't feel like overwhelming. They're not just there to just take up a bunch of space, but they really give you Kyle Fern's style, um, you know, fully fledged in these pieces that you don't quite get from the from the wooden minis. So I, I'm, I'm pretty tempted there. And boy, do I want to explore one of these three these these trilogy campaigns that you play it's just three games so they're like even in the rule book they're like yeah you can play this over three sessions or just sit down for a six hour session and how fun would that be you know it's only six hours it's not like a, a campaign where you got to pay play for 12 sessions this is something you can knock out in an afternoon and just get like this epic changing experience from it and that just sounds so cool to me so i uh, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this game if you're interested in it take a look at it. It definitely surprised me. I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I think it's I think it's a very cool evolution in Cole Worley's designs. I agree. So a couple more questions for you. Well, I want to reiterate, I think there is a lot of innovation here where it gets tossed around a lot, but the card play, for one, is fantastic. Like you said, Tim, the campaign over three games, over an afternoon, potentially, that's freaking awesome. So what are some games to try? I guess the uh, Space Corps, the GMT game, kind of tries to do that with the three separate eras, but I don't know, to me, this is a different feel than that totally. So I'm digging that. I like the innovation here. What was the point I was going to make? Oh, I wanted to ask you some questions about the 4 xiness of this compared with something like 
Eclipse or Brian Baru. I think you can take elements from both of those games and say, oh yeah, this is very much like Brian Baru in this regard, in this regard. Do you think this fits the 4X bill or do you see it as more like an area control with some dynamic goals and some little auction element over here? How does this fit into the whole... I don't know, it doesn't have to be categorized or anything. Where does this fit for you in the spectrum of 4X and Euro games? I mean, it definitely feels like a 4X game to me. And I'm not going to go by a very strict definition of, hey, it has to have all 4Xs. But if you're going to compare it to something like Eclipse, um, you know, yeah, absolutely. It it definitely gave me that feel. Um, One of the things I think that I liked more about this versus other type of 4X games or even area control games, because that is partly what this is doing, right? Like you want to take control over it. But I think one of the kind of neat things is that you weren't like people weren't just motivated to go in and knock other people out, right? Like that could be something. But I think even if you were getting attacked, even if you had maybe weaker forces, there's still opportunities for the objective cards up here in here that come up here to like pivot and maybe do something. Great example, right? Like so we had our endgame objective card that I was talking about where you were trying to collect resources and change them in with influence. And I just had not built up a good extractor engine. I didn't have a way to produce the right types of resources or any decent amount of resources over the course of the game. So we got into the final round and you and Steve both started trying to nail that thing. So you're using all your actions to put influence cubes out there, which would have been really beneficial if like one of you had done it or you know maybe you'd put two influence cubes out there. But because you guys were fighting over it, you both ended up using like four or five actions to try to take advantage of this thing. It was a lot of points. But I just realized early, I was like, I can't even touch this thing. So I'm going to go and try to spread out, get the last couple round objectives, maybe kill a couple blight and get some points that way. And I managed to barely scrape by and win the game. But it was kind of cool that I didn't, I wasn't forced into that thing that seemed like a very important part of the game. And I also think there are opportunities here. Like there was only a couple objective cards that really rewarded having a large fleet or having or fighting. Some of it was just about having the right types of territory. Some of it's having the right types of resources to collect. So I think there's a lot of different ways that this game is going to allow you to work towards victory, even if it feels like, you know, maybe you're being beat up on or you started in the wrong position and got knocked out early or something like that. So I sure had a fun time playing it. Never had any bad feelings about you know, when Steve was coming into my territory or, you know, Adam was like, ah, Steve, you got to go knock Tim out. He's in the lead, you know? And I was just like, oh, that's okay. If he comes down over here, I've got this objective card coming up next. I'm going to go work on that over on this part. And I, to me, it really made the the whole experience more fun. And, you know, for me, who, who doesn't like that, like the meanness of area control, sometimes it, it didn't feel that way. That's one thing I wanted to note too, the ability for long range planning, not, I guess, short term you got it all. You got the very short term, you got the intermediate term, and you got the long range planning with the way that the goals are laid out. It's it's freaking perfect. You can look ahead. You can try to start planning for that end game goal. It's going to give you those big chunk of points, or you can try to hit these intermediate goals. You can see what's coming up. The ability to plan and forward thinking, it just nails it, knocks it out of the park for me in this game. Yeah, agreed. All right, cool. Well, I think that'll wrap up our conversation on arcs. We'll talk about some games on our table right after this. All right, welcome back. So I'm going to talk about just a couple quick games. Um, the first one I want to mention is I got finally got a chance to play a game called Biblios. Uh, Biblios is, um, is a very simple, small box game. Uh, that is has been touted aggressively by... There's some other podcasts that 
that loves this game, right? <laughs> At least one person from what other podcast freaking loves this game. Some other podcast with board game <laughs> in the name. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's Mark from Board Game Barrage has been talking about this game for years. And I'd, I'd heard about it before, but I think it's kind of a running joke for them now where it's the best game in the world for him. He's not far off, I gotta say. So I got, I got a chance to play this game and really, really loved it. In fact, I, I, it looks like it's out of print right now or I would already have a copy for myself. So I'll, I'll be wow. watching for this. I'm hoping or expecting it will come back in print. But this game is really simple. It's basically played in two phases. What's happening is in the first round, you have kind of this hidden auction, which is really fun. It's really interesting. What happens, we played a three-player game. So what would happen in a three-player game is that the person whose turn it is is going to pick four cards off the top of the deck but they're gonna look at them one at a time. So the first card they pick up, they can either basically buy it, you have to pay a coin or whatever for it, or you can put it into a future auction. So you're gonna put in this face down pile, it's gonna be auctioned in the second phase of the game. Or you can put it face up, and then two of those cards are gonna be face up and available for the other players to purchase. That's a really interesting decision, right? Because the first card, oh, that's a pretty, that's a decent card, but it's not the best card but I think I can get a better card. So I'm gonna put that in the future auction. And then the next card that comes up, oh, that's junk. And the next two cards come up, oh, that's junk. You know, so like sometimes you're you're taking a risk by not taking the something that's okay. But also sometimes you're like, that last card you pull off the pile is like the best card of the card, exactly the card you're looking for. So that was fun. Um, and it goes pretty quickly. You know, I think it probably took us like eight to 10 minutes to get through that first phase where we're all just going around, picking up piles, putting them up for auction. Um, the point of collecting these cards before I get into the second phase is that you're basically trying to collect the the largest amounts in these five different colors of books. It's it has something the theme has something to do with being monks and trying to put together a monastery or something like that. So hold on, did you tell me this is set collection also, Tim? What's going on here? Uh, not not exactly. I mean, okay. it, you know, you're collecting sets of colors, but they have numbers on them. So you're kind of you're bidding for the more powerful cards. Got it. And then the value of those points are based on uh, this, these dice that can be adjusted. So each of the five colors starts at a, pip, a three pip dice. These dice don't get rolled or anything, but it basically it's just a marker to say, what's the value of that? So if I have a red cards and I get the opportunity, there's some cards in the deck that will let you increase or decrease the value of dice. So if I've started to collect these red cards and it's, it's a hidden, you know, I know this, but nobody else really knows what cards I have in my hand or they don't know most of them. So I might start to raise the value of those four ones because every number that I have of red at the end of the game is going to be worth four instead of three. Total number of points you're going to win is going to be worth the number of that pip set. So if I have the majority of reds at the end of the game, by default, it would be three points. So it's very low scoring, but I might be able to get up to four points. And if you can imagine, basically you're bidding for five different three point colors. So there's a max of 15 points available unless some of those dice get adjusted up. So if two people win two uh, sets, they're both going to be sitting at six points one person would be at three points. So if you can adjust one of your colors up and nobody else has adjusted it back down, then you've just won by one point. So it's a very tight point spread that happens here. Um, anyway, so after you've gone through this first round of action, so you've got a hand of cards, your opponents have hands of cards, and then there's this face down deck. And then basically what happens from there is that everybody just, you flip a card off the top of the deck and you're auctioning for it. It's a public auction. And so you'll be like, the cards that you've collected over the course of the game, most of them are these books, but there's also these money cards. And so you might say like, okay, I'm going to bid two silver for that. And the person next to you says, I'm going to bid three silver. And then, okay, then I'll pass. So you just got that for three silver, but now you have three less silver in your hand. And you're trying to kind of think like, what cards that I put in this public pile, or am I hoping is going to come up 
so that I can bid for them. And if money comes up in the public pile, then you can bid books for them. So there might be a color that you're really not going for. Like, you know, somebody's got a whole bunch of blues based on some of the information you've seen. I don't care about this two blue. So I'll, I'll bid this two blue book for that, uh, you know, two coin card that comes up. So I have more to bid on that turn. And it gets to be a very tight auction where you can kind of push someone to spend a lot of money on one card, and then they're, they're gonna lose every other auction in the rest of the game. So, you know, it's these two quick phases, fun revelation at the end of the game as far as who had the highest points in each color, but it goes super quick. I think we played a three-player game in 15 minutes, played two back-to-back. This is a great game. This is a really fun, like, I think for me, this would be my small box card game of choice at this point. Um, and, it, and it comes in a great little package. It looks like a book, like an old, you know, Bible or something like that, the little box that it comes in. Um, so a really cool little production, simple mechanisms, but um, yeah, great, great game. Mark uh, is right on from Board Game Barrage. Um, he, he definitely uh, has picked the winner here. That sounds great, Tim. Sounds uh, amazing. I was taking a quick look at it as you were talking about it. It looks super fun. I can't believe I haven't played this one yet. I need to get this one on the table. Yeah. Three-player minimum here? I, I think there is a two-player mode, and I think you can play up to four. Um, I don't know if the rules change at two players, although I suspect you could play it pretty much the same at two players. I think it'd be a little less dynamic. I played with the, the person who introduced it to me, my neighbor, um, Paul. He said that he really likes it at three. Like, four gets a little too chaotic. You can't really track what's happening around the table. Okay. And two is just not as interesting because you kind of know, you know, like, okay, I've got all these right. yellows. I'm not really competing for somebody. So three was great. Um, I would definitely try it at four. Probably not Probably not super fun at, at two. It says two to four here on Board Game Geek and best at three. All right, cool. So uh, the other game that I wanted to just mention briefly, and I'm going to circle back on this because we did talk about this in a previous episode. Uh, and that is Now or Never by Red Raven Games. And Ryan Lockett's the designer on this. I'm not going to go into too much detail about how the game works, but it's an interesting Euro game with a bit of an economic structure to it. But it's also story driven. One of the ways that you're going to go about and pick up money in the it, basically goods that you can trade for money in this game is to move about and like go to different sites and search them. And then there's a little storybook element. So it adds a lot of theme into what is otherwise a reasonably heavy and dry Euro mechanism set. That said, it's a fun game. Like I really enjoyed my multiplayer games of this game, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about the solo mode for it because the reason I added this game to my collection was because I figured, again, this is one of those games that I'm probably not gonna get a lot of plays with other people, but I think I could enjoy it solo. This game is gonna be leaving my collection because I really don't enjoy the solo experience here, and I want to talk about why. Um, number one is it feels like there's a couple hints that the solo mode was intended to operate in a different way than the final version did. For example, it's it's really simple to operate. Basically, what happens is that because you're trying to move around the board and, and get to certain spots, uh, there's monsters you can attack, and those are limited in the supply. And then there's like places you can search and there's villagers you can collect but this is all competition from other players for collecting the most valuable villagers into your city or to move to a spot before someone else takes it because you can't multiple people can't explore the same spot so all the ai is really doing is it's essentially you flip over a card and it tells you which monster gets removed from the board or which search icon gets removed or which villager gets removed so it's kind of like just taking away some of the stuff that you would want to get to that's fine it's super easy to operate you flip over a card you do what it says one of the cards in there tells you when you flip it over to roll a dice and then either take the top card off of these objective card decks 
or take the top order off this little stack of orders, which are, can be turned in for points later. But there is absolutely no value to do that for the AI. So I suspect that originally the AI was written to, you, you kind of score it like a human opponent. Like they could potentially have objectives that you would score or they can pick up these orders and you would score them. So the, for one, that just feels bad. You turn that card over and I'm like, there's no reason for me to take a card off the top of a deck. It doesn't change the game at all. So, I, so basically I just treat it as a free turn and that final feels kind of weak. The other thing is, is that the objective when you're playing solo is beat 100 points or beat your previous score if you beat 100 points. Now, I don't hate a game that gives you a, a point target if it's challenging to hit and if it's going to be challenging to hit every time I play it. Like Underwater City is a great example. I've never beat the solo mode on that because it's just right outside of my threshold of how successful I usually am at playing that game. And, you know, there may be a little bit of very, you know, very tough, close decisions that would get you to 100 points there. A Feast for Odin is another great one. Those are fun Euro games that have that kind of condition that work okay for me. In this game, it's pretty, I think, luck dependent. It's, it's going to be very situational based on how well you can do in this game from a couple of reasons. One is the, uh, the pool of villagers that are available um, are going to change game to game and they don't, re they don't reflush that often. So you could get stuck with just a set of villagers that aren't very helpful to you. Um, and this would happen if you're playing a multiplayer game, that's fine because everybody's stuck with those same issues, but then you're just competing with your opponent with the conditions that are available on the board. But when I'm playing in a solo mode against, you know, a random board setup, that's pretty variable. But what I found was easy to beat that 100 point thing. And then I was like, well, now I'm playing this game with a variable setup. So I had a great first game. I might never win it again. And that didn't feel good at all to me. Now, the experience of playing the game is fun. It's a fun game. I played it once two player with Steve, had a really good time with it. I would have loved to explore this further. But I got through, I decided to go ahead and just try to play through all six stories of the story mode with one character in here. And I got through the second story and I was just like, that is just, it, it just wasn't a, an appealing scenario for me to go through. It, it was fun to play the game, but it wasn't fun to not really have an objective that mattered at the end of the game. Like I didn't really feel like I was winning or losing. I could play the best I could and I might not win because of the conditions in the game. And it didn't really feel like what I was going to do could you know, would impact that much. I don't know. Something about it just didn't feel like I had a lot of agency in the, 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 basically the win condition wasn't interesting. Um, so ultimately I decided like after I set it up a second time and it's a fairly heavy game and it's fairly long and it's a big setup, it's a lot of components. And so I was like, well, if I put this back in the box right now, I'm probably not going to want to get it out again for several months to set it up. And then I'm going to have to relearn all the rules. And it's a it's a Ryan Lockett game, so it's got a lot of heavy edge rules you got to look up all the time. Or I can leave it out and keep playing it. And then I was like, but there are so many other games I'd rather be playing than this <laughs> solo right now. You know, like I like I played three games of Dune Imperium the day before that solo and had so much more fun playing that game than I did playing this game. Arc Nova. I tell you, dude, Imperium is a fantastic. So, oh, game. but it's only because Rise of X fixed it. Rise of X fixed ah, okay, it. Okay. So much better. For me, for me, it does anyway. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah. So that's my feeling about Nora Never. I thought I'd just circle back on that because I, I talked pretty highly, but I did, I think it's a really interesting game. I think if I had the right group of people that want like a, a very thematic Euro with some story elements in here, like I really like Ryan Lockett's games because of those things. Um, but I don't think it's, it's not not necessarily going to be easy to find somebody that wants to go back to you to this with you regularly, and for having one of these in my collection that I might pull out and teach somebody once in a while, I'm going to keep 
near and far in my collection because I think it's a little more streamlined, a little bit easier to get other people introduced to, and it gives me those same elements. So now or never is leaving my collection. I'm gonna um, ship it out to Riley Stock. He's been asking about it, so I'm gonna send it over to him and see what he thinks of it. So I think you may have answered this already. A couple questions for you. Hearing you describe it and taking a look at some images of it, it gives me at least you know superficially some feels from was it Viscounts of the West Kingdom or Architects of the West Kingdom? Okay, one of those two. And Lost Ruins of Arnak. You're talking about going to monsters and conquering these monsters, getting the thing. Whatever, the point I'm trying to get at is what would you recommend for people looking for a solo experience instead of Now or Never? Yeah, that's a good question. Unfortunately, Near, Near, Near and Far, which is the game of his I'm going to keep, doesn't have a solo mode for it. So I can't even recommend that as an alternative. But the games that I definitely prefer of a similar kind of similar weight, I guess, you know, I just mentioned Dune Imperium. I'd rather play um lost ruins it's much quicker setup and gameplay is pretty quick and rapid um i like council of the west kingdom and architects of the west kingdom i have been having a blast with lately so you know those are the games that i would pick like when i was sitting here saying should i just keep this set up to play again then i was like no i want to play all of those games instead that sounds like sleeping gods from what i've heard about too that's the one yeah that's the one where you're like the the pirates on the ship kind of exploring this world so for a narrative storytelling i've heard a lot of good things about Sleeping Gods. Never played it, but that seems to work well at one or two players for a kind of story adventure game. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Sleeping Gods because they just had a follow-up Kickstarter to Sleeping Gods called Sleeping Gods Distant Skies, which is supposed to be kind of a new, let's say version two, or kind of like a streamlined version of Sleeping Gods. I have heard great things about Sleeping Gods. In fact, it just made it to the top 100 on Board Game Geek today. So congratulations to Ryan Lockett. That's, that's a big achievement. When I look at Sleeping Gods, though, you know, if I'm going to play it solo, basically, no matter how many players you play with, you manage nine characters, nine characters with slightly asymmetric abilities. And that it just feels like a headache. Like, I don't I don't want to, like, follow that much information. So that always bugged me, but I was still ready to pull the trigger and give it a try. So ready, I almost ordered it. And then this new campaign came out, and it looks like with Distant Skies, you're only managing, like, four or five characters. And it sounds like it, even though the, the combat system and it looked really fun before, this kind of fuzzy, fun, puzzly combat system, it's now added a little bit of a deck building, building element to it, which makes it seem even more interesting to me. So I'm going to try this version two. I, I did back the Kickstarter on that. was tempted to back the original two, and I was like, no, no, I don't need to do that. Because, you know, if the, if the new one's great, that's fine. Maybe then I'll go back and play the original. And if the new one's not great, then, you know, I'll have tried this little bit more streamlined version. And that's the one that comes with a little airplane that you said you're going to give to me. Is that right? <laughs> the yeah, the fully the painted airplane that you're definitely yeah. not going to get. But you, you, <laughs> I'll play it with you if you ever want to come visit. <laughs> All right, it sounds. I definitely won't be trying to steal that and put that in my bag as I'm out the door. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will wrap up um, the games that have been on our table this week. I did want to call out a listener who left us a nice review this week. Always wonderful to see these coming in all the time. So if you like the show and want to help more people find us or just give us some kudos and appreciating the show or enjoying it, um, we'd appreciate it if you'd leave a review for us. Um, Apple Podcasts seems to be the most common place to leave them, but whatever platform you listen to. So this listener said, excellent podcast, both team and content. 
This is my go-to podcast and the only reason I look forward to mowing and doing yard work in Houston's ridiculous heat and humidity. Glad that we can make your day a little bit better um, because I know that can be awful. The format is great. The variety of games and content keeps keeps things fresh and the team's views differ enough to keep things interesting each episode. Games discussed include older, newer, popular, obscure, highly rated, and hot mess. And you put Tetris the card game in parentheses here. <laughs> yes. If you are looking for hot messes, you can just listen for Adam's uh, on the table segment. Um, the closing segment, sharing a beverage recipe that ties into the episode's theme is great, especially with the brief history around either the beverage creator and or ingredients. And so thank you, Chris, of course, for always giving that fun little flavor when, you, when you're when you on the show, which you usually are. You didn't get to join us today, unfortunately. And that was from Leary81 on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so much. Really nice review. Glad to hear that we're making your day a little cooler in Houston as you're doing your yard work. Um, and always just fun to hear that people are listening and appreciating and enjoying the show. So thanks for that. That's a great review. So thank you for that. I want to echo the sentiment there about Chris. I think he spends about 20 hours a week writing those drink <laughs> segments. They're fantastic, Chris. I'm kidding, of course, but he does put in tons of work to researching this i love all the stories that he tells and the way he puts it together fantastic work chris i just want to give you a nice compliment while you're not here to blush about it or dismiss it away great work chris miss you we'll see you next week yeah and if you uh if you ever listen to that segment and get inspired to make one of the cocktails there share a picture with us on twitter at uh, bg underscore hot takes and we'll we'll retweet we'll retweet your picture and uh, share it with the world um, love to hear people hearing that are appreciating hearing about the show, but I would love to hear if some people are actually attempting these interesting cocktails that, that Chris can count. All right. Well, I think that will wrap us up until next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.